For those of you who know me, you will know that I absolutely love books. Now here's a picture of my personal theological library at home. I think there's about 700 books there. Um, and I, I warned us against materialism last week. And I think this is the area where I am in most danger of succumbing to that. Uh, and you want to know the thing, uh, the best thing that can happen to somebody who loves books as much as me. Free books. Uh, and you know what? Last semester, I actually thought that I hit the jackpot. Now, I'm friends with a guy called Carl. He owns a Christian bookshop. And this is the guy who ran our NYC bookstore, by the way. And we were on the phone, and we were talking about a new book that had just been published. And he says to me, oh, did you want that book? I'll send you a copy. So I'm like, jackpot! Free book. Finally, this friendship is paying off. <laughs> now, a week later, I get the book in the mail. I am psyched. Like, free book. And I take it out of the envelope. And do you know what's on top of it? An invoice for fifteen ninety-nine. Like, man... I thought I was in, but it turns out that I'm just like all you other plebs who have to pay for books. <laughs> now, if you remember from last week, we have been filling in the context of Paul's gospel message. He's giving us the reason why you need the gospel. And the answer that he gives us back in chapter 1, verse 17, is because it reveals to us a righteousness that we can make our own. And the reason that should make us line up like it's Boxing Day sales and vault over old grandmas to get to the goods is because we don't have righteousness. And without righteousness, what will happen is God will judge us and he will condemn us. Now remember last week, God is angry with you. And because we've failed to treat God as God and we've let other things become the ultimate thing, in our life. And so what God makes clear to us today in today's passage is that when it comes to his judgment, there are no exceptions. You can't buddy buddy up with God and expect to get a free book. There's no favoritism, there's no get out of jail free card. You will face judgment and you will be found wanting. And so today it's a big passage. Uh, we're going to tackle it under three headings that are there on your outline God's judgment, God's judgment, and the law and then God's judgment and you. So first of all, let's have a look at God's judgment. I'm going to start reading, but I'm going to start reading from chapter 1, verse 29. And that's going to give us a running jump into the passage, and you'll understand why I'm doing this in a second. But let's start. So chapter 1, verse 29. I'm going to go all the way through the end of verse 1. Um, they, the people who have uh, seen fit to not acknowledge God, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now as I read those verses out, what I hope you noticed is that when we got, today's, got to today's passage, Paul changes person. Now up until now he's been talking in the third person. They do this, they do that, 
they, they, they. It's all very general. But as soon as we get to verse 1, he changes to the second person. It goes, they, 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 you. And all of a sudden, he's up in your grill, and things just got real. Now, why would he do that? Why would he switch like that? Well, Paul is springing something called a rhetorical trap. Now, he's aware that as he's writing this letter to the Romans, and as they read it, some of them will be sitting there hearing his condemnation of the wickedness of man, and they'll be thinking that he's not describing them. And instead of confessing their sin, what they're doing as they sit there and listen is they're judging other people's sin. And they're sitting there and they're going, <laughs> idolatry, those stupid pagans. Dishonorable passions, yeah, I know who you're talking about, Paul. Filled with unrighteousness, yeah, those guys. I'm glad I'm not one of them. Now, Paul, he knows this is happening as he is progressing his argument. And so instead of nipping it in the bud, he actually lets it play out, gives him a bit of rope, and lulls the judges into a false sense of security before he turns on them and says, you think I'm talking about those guys, I'm talking about you. Look what he says in verse 2. We know, we, us, you, me, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You are just as guilty because you do the same things. Now, I think this should be a warning to us. Because, like, honestly, how many of us actually read the chapter from last week in chapter 1 and heard that description of the sin um, that I just read out? You know, malice, covetousness, strife, murder, slander, inventors of evil. And listen to that and think that that's actually describing us. Because if you're anything like me, I hear that list and I think that's a detestable list. I don't approve of it. I'm not part of that group of God-haters. And yet Paul turns around and he says to each one of us, no, you do the same things. So do not presume to escape the judgment of God. Now, I want these verses to knock us off our moral high ground. But what I also want to make clear is that these verses aren't primarily addressed to a generic group of judgmental people. They're not addressed to Christians. When Paul writes these verses, he actually has a particular group of people in mind, and that's the Jews. Now, he doesn't mention that explicitly until verse 17 there, where he says, if you call yourself a Jew. But once we get that, the earlier hints become a bit more apparent. In verse 4, we see a presumption on the riches of God's kindness. And that's actually a reference not to God's grace in the gospel, but to his covenant promises to the Jews. And then in verse 9, and again in verse 10, we see that God's judgment equally applies to the Gentile and the Jew, not just the Gentile. And then really from verse 12 and, uh, and onwards to the end of today's passage, it is talking about all things Jew. And so the most basic question that arises out of today's passage is why? Why does Paul target the Jews? What makes them take the moral high ground and think that they're the exception to the rule? So that's the question. Maybe take 30 seconds with the person next to you and try and answer it. Why would the Jews be the ones sitting in judgment? Alrighty, that should be enough. I'm not going to give you too much time. Does anyone have a suggestion that they want to offer? Why would the Jews be the ones sitting in judgment? They think they're more important. They were God's chosen people. Yeah, I think you're on track there. Anyone else have something similar to that? 
They had the law as well, yeah. And I think if you put those two things together, you actually get the answer to that question. Uh, the answer has to do with their status as God's chosen people. He chose them, he gave them his law, uh, and he promised one day that he would save them. So they actually knew who God was, and they knew how to give favour to him and earn his favour. And so when they hear Paul's accusations concerning the rejection of God for idol worship, they're not thinking themselves, are they? They're thinking the rest of the world, because that's what the Gentiles over there do. And the Jews, I think, would have naturally thought that as Paul condemned mankind, it was everybody out there, and it wasn't God's in-crowd, the Jews. But what Paul wants to say to them is that if you are thinking in that way, then you are way off the mark. What does he say? Well, verse 4, that kindness was meant to lead you to repentance, not complacency. It didn't give you immunity. What it gave you was a warning, a warning that the rest of the world didn't have. But instead, what did you do? Instead of listening to that warning, responding to that kindness, verse 5, your hard hearts led you to continue in sin and store up wrath. And what that means is you're going to be judged by God as well. This is not just a Gentile thing. What could have made the Jews go so wrong? I think the answer is that they misunderstood the basis of God's judgment. Paul explains that to us in verse 6. Let's have a look here. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then... Paul's final nail in the coffin here in verse 11. For God shows no partiality. See, the Jews, they thought that their privileged status gave them some sort of special consideration before God on Judgment Day. But the reality is that nobody is exempt from the judgment of God because, well, what does verse 6 say there? It says that he will render to each one according to his works. There is one universal standard and it's based on what we do. And that is why Western Sydney Uni is lame. Well, let me explain. You guys have heard of early entry, right? I, I grew up in Campbelltown, uh, and in Campbelltown, WSU would be like, here, have an extra 10 points to your ATAR if you come to us. And I just want to say that that is just ridiculous, right? Completely takes the thing off the end. Now, I gave this illustration at the Strathfield Bible Talk on Monday. You know what they said to me? ACU is exactly the same. <laughs> How many of you actually got here via an early entry thing? I want to say that your university does not understand the judgment of God. There is no inside track. Just one universal standard. It's what we do. For those who persist in doing good works, you'll be given eternal life. But if you're self-seeking and you disobey the truth, then you'll receive what your works deserve. You'll receive God's wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. Now question, does this mean that we can earn our way to God? Because, I mean, at least looking at this, it seems at least theoretically possible if we do good, right? But what's the problem here? What has Paul just told us in the previous chapter? Chapter 1, mankind has collectively scorned glory and honour and immortality. That's the thing we should be seeking there in these verses, but those are the things, the very three things that we've jettisoned. Because rather than obeying God's truth, 
that he reveals about himself in creation, what do we do? Well, we suppress the truth with our unrighteousness. And instead, what we do is we don't honour God as God, and we exchange his glory for the glory of creation, and we exchange the glory of the immortal God for the creation which is mortal. And so there's the trifecta, three strikes and you're out. Paul's point here is that he's not holding out a favourable verdict for you on Judgment Day, that it is possible if you do good that you can get there. His point is that no matter what you think you have going for you, it will count for nothing. Because God judges according to works. And our works, all of us without exception, Jew, Gentile, good community citizen, well, they'll be found wanting. So as you can imagine, this sort of idea would not have gone down well with a Jewish audience because Paul has just leveled the playing field and removed every leg up that the Jews thought that they had. And so the big question in their minds uh, would have been this. What is the point of the Jewish law then? That thing that you guys mentioned before, the thing that distinguished the Jews from the rest of the world. Why do we even have it? Because this is the thing that tells us how to please God. This is the thing that helps us avoid His wrath on Judgment Day. And so Paul shifts gears in verse 12 and he starts talking about God's judgment and the law and he starts to explain how it does fit in. He says in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And here is his key point. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that the law doesn't save you. Instead, it judges you because you are, you're not good enough. It's not, an, it's not good enough to just hear the law and know what you have to do to please God. You have to do it. In other words, what he says to the Jews is having the law doesn't give you a saving advantage. And he gives two reasons as to why that's the case. The first, using the Gentiles in verses 14 to 16. And then the second, using the Jews in verses 17 through 29. Two reasons why the law doesn't give you a saving advantage. Let's have a look at the Gentiles. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. <coughs> Here's the first reason Paul can say that the law has no saving advantage. It's because the ones who don't have the law are capable of doing the law. Now, he's not talking here about the finer points of sacrifice or whether or not you can eat birds and creepy crawlies or things with clothes and hooves. What he's talking about here is God's moral requirements that are true for all of creation but that are made explicit in the Mosaic law. And this is what he's saying. They may not have heard the moral demands as outlined in the law, but they by nature know what the law requires. And so they may not have the law, but they can at times, they are able to do the law. And so when they do, what they're showing is that the law is written on their hearts. And Paul's point here, therefore, is to say that all the law does is make clearer what is already known by each and every one of us by nature. And you can see this concept, I think, in practice, can't you? Because there are some universal moral standards that we find across all cultures and times, irrespective of where you are. 
um, whether or not you've even had the Ten Commandments, whether or not they, you know, they even exist. And I think murder is the classic example. Right? Another one is stealing. We all have some sort of moral, intuitive knowledge written on our hearts. But more than that, we experience it ourselves too, don't we? Uh, because we know when we've crossed a line and we do something wrong. Our conscience tells us and we feel that, that, that pit in our stomach twist. Similarly, we also know when we do good because we get that warm, fuzzy feeling. It's like, on your champ, you did a good job. Right? Our consciences also confirm that this is true. And so what Paul is saying here is that even those without the law have some form of moral knowledge that enables them, at least in principle, to know what to do that is good and then to do that good, whether or not they've seen it in the law. In other words, what it means is the law doesn't give you an edge. Now, before I move on to the second reason and talk about the Jews, I actually want to take a moment here to appreciate how these verses fit into Paul's wider argument. Because if we're not careful, what we'll end up thinking is that Paul is saying more than he's actually saying. Now, I'm assuming most of you have heard of this well-known objection to Christianity that goes something like this. Okay, if the only way to be saved is to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel, then what about the Amazonian tribesmen in deepest, darkest Africa who never gets to hear about Jesus? Surely that's unfair. Surely, therefore, the gospel can't be real. Okay? People turn to these verses to answer that objection. And so I want to ask you the question, verses 14 to 16, how would you use those verses to answer that objection? couple of seconds with the person next to you. to. Um, here's, here's the way that people normally answer the question using Romans 2. It says, hey, look at Romans 2. The Gentiles who don't have access to God's revelation still can do good and their consciences will accuse or even excuse them on the day of judgment. Therefore, it is possible to be saved without hearing the gospel. Case closed. Now, without putting any bounds on what God can and can't do in miraculously bringing the gospel to bear in unreachable places, that argument is completely wrong. In fact, if we make that sort of argument, what we're doing is we're opening up a space where it is possible to be saved apart from the work of Christ. And we know that can't be true because that contradicts Scripture. In fact, in the very book of Romans, in chapter 10, verse 13... Paul makes an argument and he basically says the way that you're saved is to call on the name of the Lord and you can only call on Him if you believe in Him and you can only believe in Him if, what does he say? If you've heard. That's Romans 10.13, you can check it out later. So what Paul is not doing here is he's not opening up another avenue for salvation apart from Jesus. 
What these verses are not saying is that apart from Christ you can be saved. What they're actually saying, and this is a real key point, that apart from Christ you still know enough to be condemned. I'll say that again. These verses are not saying that apart from Christ you can be saved. What they're saying is that apart from Christ you know enough to be condemned. Remember Paul's argument. These verses are nestled in a massive, extensive argument outlining our need for the gospel. It started in Romans 1.18, and it's going to keep going all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. And the whole time, Paul only has one point. You've sinned. Every single one of us is screwed. And we're only up to talk two or three on that whole thing, so really the next three talks, where all of them had the same point. We are absolutely stuffed before the judgment of God. And so the thought that these verses could mean that somebody is good enough to merit salvation on the basis of what they do cuts across everything that Paul has been trying to convince us of. Last week, this week, and next week. Now, at this point you might ask, well, what about verse 15? Because Paul says there that their thoughts can even excuse them. Surely that means that it's possible, at least in some cases... And I would say to you, we'll actually look at the verse again. What does it say about the thoughts? Well, it says that the thoughts are conflicting. Some thoughts accuse, others excuse, but the point is both of them are there in the same person. Some of the things they might do might be excusable by their conscience at Judgment Day, but not all of them. The thing to understand is every Gentile, and in fact every human being, is a mixed bag, a bag that is filled with more coal than with diamonds. So what do you do with the Amazonian tribesmen? Well, you can still use Romans 2, but this is how you would answer the thing. You actually turn the question on its head, and you start off and you say to the person, okay, I hear your objection, but you've got to understand that God judges us on the basis of works, and we have all sinned. And so regardless of who you are, Jew, Gentile, Westerner, tribesman, we all know enough to know better, and yet we haven't done anything good with that knowledge. And so when God judges us, we're only ever getting what we deserve. It's not unfair that the tribesman doesn't get to hear about the gospel. It's unfair that you do. So what are you going to do with that knowledge? Are you going to respond to his gospel and his mercy by repenting and taking the salvation that you don't deserve? Or are you going to get huffy about a hypothetical situation, about a person that you actually genuinely don't care about? And you know the kind of person who's going to respond to that sort of argument? It's the sort of person who will actually get that they're sinful and that therefore God is justified when they punish us. They're the ones that are going to repent because they'll understand both their need and how the gospel answers it. So that's just an aside because it pops up so often those verses. I just wanted to be clear that we understood those. But Paul is not talking about the Amazonian tribesmen here. He's talking to the Jew. And so far, he's established that the law doesn't give you a saving edge because the Gentiles who don't have the law can, at times, do the law. They have a moral knowledge. And whether or not they do, it's actually material to his point. What he's trying to do is establish that the God who judges us will judge us based on works, not on whether or not we possess the law. And that leads us then to the second reason that Paul gives. The Jews who have the law aren't doing the law. Have a look again at verse 17. I'm going to read a large chunk of this. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, 
And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who have poor idols, do you rob temples? Here's the key point. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now Paul's reasoning here is really simple. As a Jew, you have been given in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But instead of keeping it, you break it. So why on earth do you think that would give you any advantage at all? Now, personal confession, my dad, it's not personal, my dad is a hoarder. Uh, but he's one of those rainy day hoarders, you know, those, those guys. If he sees anything that might even be marginally useful in the future, he keeps it. Which is awesome, except that he never uses it. And so the things that would have been really, really useful back in the 1990s are, are wasted now. So he's the sort of guy that if you need five cassette tape players and an abacus, you go to him, right? I have discovered in recent years that I am exactly the same, except I do it with gift cards. Right? $100 gift card, awesome. A lot of money, don't want to just waste that money, I've got to use it on something special. So I've got to think about it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this gift card, I'm going to put it in the drawer, close the drawer. You guys have no idea how many expired gift cards I have. Hundreds of dollars. But, but that is not the point here. <laughs> it hurts me, but it's not the point. The point is, whatever was to my advantage is now to my loss, because I didn't use it properly. And it's the same with the Jews. They took God's law, they put it in a drawer, and then they went out and they behaved like the Gentiles. So much so that the Gentiles then looked at them and just went, well, their God can't be for real, look at how they're behaving. I think there's a lesson here for us, uh, even though it's not Paul's meaning. It's actually James who says this, James chapter 1, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest you deceive yourself. So the thing I want to say to you guys at EOC is your Bible, it doesn't belong in a drawer. It doesn't even belong on the table in front of you. Where it belongs is in your heart. It's one thing to know what God would have you do as a Christian. But if you're not doing it, you are no better than somebody who doesn't know it at all. In fact, I think that you are worse because you're culpable then. You know it, but if you disobey it, then your conduct brings God into disrepute. The people who look on, your classmates, your friends, your family, they just go, well, this God can't be for real. <coughs> what we learn about God at church, at EOC, in our own private quiet times, <coughs> that is meant to be put into practice. <coughs> and that is exactly what the Jews had not done. They thought that they would be judged based on who they were, not what they had done. I'm a Jew, they said. Therefore, I'm safe. And that's why Paul brings up circumcision there in verse 25. Have a look at verse 25. Skim your eyes over it. What does he say? For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision 
but break the law. Do you see what Paul's done there? He's completely flipped it so that who you are before judgment is actually a function of what you've done in the flesh on earth. And this is significant because what it means now is that all of the outward signs of Jewishness, well, they no longer matter. What matters is the internal signs of truth. Those are the things that determine whether or not we are included as one of God's people. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. You see, God is the one who determines who is to be praised and who is to be condemned. And what does he base that on? Well, he doesn't base it on religious heritage. He bases it on obedience. And so possession of the law, circumcision, it gives you no saving advantage when God comes to judge. And that's really how he deals with the Jewish thought, that the law, what's going on with the law. Uh, but we need to think a bit more carefully about what this means for us, because my suspicion is that none of you are practicing Jews. You may have Jewish heritage, and that's significant. We'll talk about that later on in the semester. Uh, but we need to figure out how we can take this passage written to the Jews and apply it to us. And I think the main point is, is really one that you should have gotten already here. Yeah? It's what you do that matters. And that's because it's what you do that God judges. And here's the thing. All of you have done evil. You may have done some good things. You may have done some really good things. You may even be what society calls a good person. But none of us have obeyed the truth, not consistently, not completely. And those sins, those sins aren't just dust that you can brush off your skin and be clean again. They're a sickly disease that is embedded in your flesh. See, no one calls a cancer patient healthy, even if they can run a mile, even if they can do a hundred sit-ups. Our sin, it colours everything. Now, I was on a walk-up on Tuesday afternoon with Angus over at Strathfield ESC, and we got to meet a guy... Um, and we had a chat with him for an hour. It just exploded. We were kind of thinking he might just politely say no, but he actually said, pull up a seat, let's chat. We were there for an hour. And one of the objections he raised is that he just liked the idea that surely God, being a top bloke, knowing that he is completely good, will just see us and see that we, we intended to be good and to, we intended to do good and we tried our best. And surely that's good enough for God. And I want to say, sure, if you choose to swim 90% of the way across the ocean and then stop swimming, you still drown. God is not going to gloss over anything. He doesn't have mates' rates. The Jews didn't even get special treatment. And they were the ones with the privileged relationship with God. And so this is really where the rubber hits the road for you guys. If they didn't get special treatment, what makes you think that you would? You who are not a Jew you who have not got the covenant promises that he made to them. Every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. And when we do, only one standard will matter. No early entry. No free books. It'll be our works. And our works are wanting. What we need is the righteousness that we don't have. So what do we do? Well, I think we do what the Jews didn't do in verses 4 to 5. We repent. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God and claim his gospel, which is the one place that we can find the righteousness that we so sorely need. And so my plea to you guys this morning 
is to not make the same mistake that the Jews made and harden your hearts and somehow fool yourself into thinking that God is a lenient judge or even not a judge at all. (coughs) Because that way only leads to ruin. Much better to acknowledge your need, turn, and so be saved. How about we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for this warning. Thank you for your justice, that you will judge us according to one universal standard. A standard of fairness, a standard of equity. I pray that we won't get cocky, but instead we will praise you for that. And let that be a warning to us that we desperately need the grace that you give us in your gospel. Our Father, please don't let us harden our hearts. Instead, will you help us to cling to you and claim the righteousness that we don't have. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.